Welcome to the Soft Life with Sadie Baddies. Sadie Baddies is the antidote to mental health stigma, and this podcast is hosted by yours truly, Priscilla O. Adjman. We are a virtual sanctuary centering Black and multiracial people, and we prioritize the mental and emotional nourishment that is the foundation of collective healing in our communities. Thank you for being here. Welcome back to the Soft Life Baddies. Last week, we talked about starting your healing journey with our wonderful guest, Dr. Okuya Botang. If you're a newbie to this messy and long-winded thing we call healing, this episode is the perfect place to start, especially if you've ever felt lost or stuck as to what step to take on your healing journey. In last week's episode, she shares her insight on the challenges and successes of first-time therapy goers, what some of the cultural and social barriers are to starting therapy, and how to embark on your own healing journey for the first time. I know if I had the chance to listen to this episode before I started my own healing journey almost 10 years ago, I would have felt so much more supported and guided along the way. So if you haven't had a chance to check out last week's episode, definitely give it a listen. As you know, we can't grow this podcast without you. So if you've already provided us with the review or rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, thank you so much. You have no idea how much this helps this community grow. Today's guest is Dr. Ebony Butler, licensed psychologist and food relationship strategist and entrepreneur. Dr. Ebony Butler has made it her mission to help women of color heal and thrive in the areas of trauma, including racial trauma and recovering from food and body trauma experienced through diet culture. Dr. Ebony works alongside women to help them develop skills that increase their relationships with others, themselves, and their bodies. Aligning with her passion to break through barriers that made it difficult for Black people and other people of color to access quality mental health care, Dr. Ebony created My Therapy Cards, the first ever self-exploration card deck for Black women and other women of color. Since its launch in May 2020, Dr. Ebony has expanded the card deck to include a teen edition and the men's edition. The expansion of this resource has made self-insight and discovery work more accessible and affordable. Let's welcome Dr. Ebony to The Soft Life. Thank you, Dr. Ebony, for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Yes, yes. We're all excited to have you. I think anyone that's come across your know, your work has knows how vibrant you are, how much life you bring to the mental health space that can sometimes feel very like stuffy and kind of, you know, a little serious. And I just love that you bring so much life and personality to it. So it's so excited to talk to you today um so can you tell us like you know where where are you located um tell us a little bit about your environment right now yeah yeah so I'm in Austin Texas um it's hot uh <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter when you catch this uh this recording this episode, <laughs> it's probably gonna it's- be hot because <laughs> we're in Texas but um, I like it in Texas. I like it here. The weather is is going to do what it's going to do. But my work primarily centers around working with, of course, Black women. My practice is typically just outpatient stuff, like one-on-one therapy, mm-hmm. working through some of the stuff that you named, which I absolutely love. Um, and I love showing up on social media to help deal with the, the issues that we see in mental health where folks are like, oh, I can't go talk to that person. That person is completely right. So a large part of the work that I do is trying to remain as authentic as I can so that folks feel like they can approach the field and approach the work so they can do their work because that's what's yeah, needed. Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely do. You are 
1000% authentic. So, so happy to have you here. Um, and I would love to know, you know, kind of your backstory, like what are some of the most defining moments of your upbringing? Mm, my upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I have to say the, the first two things that come to mind, just honestly, probably is the divorce my parents experienced. I feel like that was super defining in really curating, I think, the thought process and the core belief around my value and my worth, if I'm honest. Um, a lot of work I still do in therapy myself now around that. So I would say that's mm -hmm. a defining moment. The other defining moment I would say has to be high school when I kind of, that's when I really figured out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Mm -hmm. um, and I figured that that, okay, this is going to be how. This is going to be how I make it. This is going to be how I get myself out of Mississippi because I grew up in Mississippi. And it was honestly mm. when uh, a psychology teacher, I was fortunate enough to take psychology in high school, mm -hmm. which doesn't happen often. And a psychology teacher, I walked in one day, was like, hey, Dr. Burrell, which is my maiden name. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, hey. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you got to be a doctor, right? And I was like, gotcha. Yes, I am. Yes. And that was kind of the defining moment. And that kind of laid the, the path. Uh, for me wanting to even become a psychologist wow it's like somebody poured into you before you even realized it that's amazing yeah. that's amazing yeah. that you had that support at such a young age because so many of us go through our lives like really struggling to find someone or mentors or teachers or whoever to support us and it's amazing that you had that at such an early age um and so you know you wanted to come into the mental health field and, and be a, a psychologist how how did you actually segue into being in the mental health field like what was your journey to being a therapist yeah so I majored in psychology as an undergrad so of course you do the four years there right and I studied like depression in first year college students so the people who had gone to college the first time in their families looking at depression and then I got a master's um so I did a research program in between my undergrad and master's that kind of solidified that I wanted to do definitely want to do PhD mm -hmm. then I got a master's because I could not get into my PhD program at the time that I applied which I think is yeah. important to know because they see you they see where you are now and they're like oh you just had success along the way the whole time. No, I got rejected. Right. I didn't get in. So I had to go get a master's uh, to yeah. prove that I could do graduate level work, no matter how smart I was all my life, right. whatever, right? So I got a master's in clinical psychology, realized that wasn't a good fit. Um, I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. I realized I wanted to do counseling. Clinical was too, um, too, too, it was too stuffy for me. It was like too... Mm -hmm in the medical model that wasn't client-centered so then I went and got a PhD in counseling psychology um mm -hmm. and there I studied like black women's sexuality development how people how black women negotiate their sexual experiences what influences that and that kind of led into me wanting to work with the population that I'm working with now I thought mm -hmm. I wanted to work with veterans and in a hospital because that's where psychologists work, right? Yeah. But it wasn't until I had those experiences that was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to work specifically with Black women around trauma. I want to work with us around negotiating and um, taking up space in our sexual experiences and our relationships. But we can't do that unless we work through the trauma part. So that's why mm. trauma is such a large part of the work that I do. That's amazing. I think the fact that you found a path there and you were able to connect those dots of wanting to help people, knowing that that's, you know, that was your calling, but 
realizing that there's there's a process to it you know there's it's not like one day you just wake up and you're healed and you're like all right that's it you know there's so much work to be done I think it's I always um, appreciate people who can, you know, take a step back and be observant. And I think it sounds like that's exactly what you did um, throughout your early career and your your mental health um, career journey. So I would love to also know what are some of the challenges as well as some of the best um, parts or the highlights of being a mental health professional and being um, in the field that you're in? Well, this field is hard. This field is hard for Black folks. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I didn't get into a PhD program the first time I applied was test scores. Now, mind you, all throughout high school, top ranked in my class, accolades from elementary on, gifted programs, accelerated programs, international Mm -hmm. baccalaureate programs, but I could not test well. Mm -hmm. And when I say test well, it was standardized testing because the public schools that I went to just weren't versed in the vocabulary that I needed in order to be able to pass those exams. Mm. So those exams are not norm for folks who have education, come from the educational system that I came from, lack of resources, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So my my test scores were low, which made me not as competitive. Um, mm-hmm. So those test scores basically tell the school, oh, this person can do that level work, which was right. completely not true. It was just that test the score just below. So that's not, that I think is a barrier for black folk. Mm-hmm. Those are just standardized testing that we all have to do to get into higher ed. Fast forward to the psychology tests that you have to take in order to be licensed. Those tests also are double gatekeepers. I mean, they are hardwired. You're not, it is very hard to get past. And so many of us people of color struggle with passing the national um, psychology exam. Um, many of us have had to take it multiple times. So those are barriers. So if you want to become a psychologist and be able to practice as a psychologist, those are things that you have to get through. And those are things that people find the most difficult, which is why they stop. Um, Mm. so those are the barriers I think it is, it is so much money. You are a grad student, not making money, but you have to pay $600 a pop for these tests. And if you fail it, that's $600 each time with money that you don't have. So those are huge barriers. So just to be here. As a practicing psychologist means that you've gone, you've gone through some hoops. So those are the things that I think are challenges, but the highlights are being able to be here and being right. able to take up space and being a, a, an autonomous person and saying that we need to do some work. This field is not set up for us. We were not supposed to be here. And this field is oppressive to both clients and and therapists and professionals. So that's something that I speak about often. Um, I tell mm. people all the time, I have a very um, intense love-hate relationship with mental health. I love the work that I do, but I hate the way this field oppresses people who look like me in order to yeah. do look like me. So I think those are some of the barriers and highlights all the same. Yeah, and it makes it so much harder because not only are Black people and people of color disproportionately affected by you know a lot of different trauma and it manifests in our families our relationships financially and then you you want to be the person that introduces the change you know you like yourself like you you are a therapist that's doing the work and you're doing such important and very unique work that not everybody can do, not everybody's cut out to do, not everybody is capable to do. And you would think you'd want to make those barriers a lot easier but instead it's it what you described sounds like it was exponentially 
difficult for you to move past those barriers because of structural racism like yeah, I, that's I just exactly think that's, yeah that's that's crazy um but honestly again commend you and I really appreciate you for pushing through and having the endurance and the persistence because you're here today and you're a Dr. Ebony and <laughs> <laughs> period like despite all the, the period like you know so I'm just grateful that you pushed through because we need you we need more and more of us to be in this space um and speaking you know more to your actual work like I know that you focus a lot on the relationship between food and body trauma um, as a therapist. And I would love for you to describe how our early childhood and upbringing shapes our body image over time. Mm -hmm. That's the, you know, I love this this topic. Um, that's the foundation. Yeah. The, our, our upbringing is the foundation for a lot of the stuff that we experience just on an emotional and mental level anyway. When you start talking about body image stuff, when you start talking about identity, who you know yourself to be, who you understand yourself to be in proximity and in relationship to your body, it starts in childhood. Um, mm -hmm. It starts with the people who are caring for you and how they talk about your body, how they talk about their body, how you engage with food starts at a very early age. And it is very much influenced by the people who are raising you, how they engage with food. It's also really uh, influenced by the access that you have to food and the access that you have to bodies that look like yours. What is mm. being said about bodies that look like yours? If you're in sixth grade and you're one of the uh, larger sixth graders, what are people saying about your body in relation to those other people? So whatever is happening there is how you come to understand yourself. It's how you come to understand your body. Whatever messages you receive around food, that sets the foundation for how you're going to engage with food as an adult. For instance, mm. one of the things that I talk about all the time is a message that we received around eating your food, being grateful for your food, or if you don't do that, the children in Africa are going to starve. That is one of the main Ooh, things. <laughs> yes. Yes. Triggered. Triggered. That sets the tone, right? yes. tone for how we yeah. think about our food and how we look at and listen to the signals that our bodies give us around whether we want food or full from food or not, or can tolerate more food. We start to rely on the system of guilt and shame to be the, the uh, signals that we need around whether we're full or whether we want more, whether we should stop, whether we keep going, those things versus what is my body telling me? We learned at a very early age, you can't trust your body, trust guilt, trust shame, because if you don't eat it, you're taking away from the kids in Africa. Yeah. So we're yeah. relying on a system that was imposed on us versus what our own bodies are telling us. So we're eating beyond what our system is telling us is enough, or we're not eating enough to feed ourselves. And so you know, it goes both ways. And so I think that those messages set the tone very early. Wow. I, I think almost every <laughs> black, black person and person of color has heard that at some point, yeah. you know, don't finish your food or because there's starving kids in Africa. Mm -hmm. It's like, first of all, there's starving kids here too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I'm African myself. And whenever I would hear that, first of all, it's, it's offensive because mm -hmm. it's always, it's, puts first Africa is not this monolithic place by any means yeah. by any means so to paint this picture as if you know it's just this, this destitute place where there nobody has any food 
it's that's not the case. And in addition to that, like you said, you're learning and being conditioned from an early age to ignore your own hunger cues. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, we could probably even uh, connect the the relationship we have with food to the gratitude factor and being being grateful and being humble about it. But in reality, food is supposed to nourish our bodies. You know, it's it, it sometimes has this emotional relationship that we can build over time with it. But at the same time, um, what I've noticed is that a lot of parents, especially black parents and parents of color, can attach that guilt Mm -hmm. to food and you know I put food on the table I paid for this you know like this this relationship that food becomes is this commodity that we have to like have this scarcity like mindset around and it really destroys our relationship with food over time and I'm just Mm -hmm. glad you spoke on that um and speaking more to you know our relationship with food and, and and those of us who struggle or may struggle with our relationship with food I would love to know what are some of the most prominent patterns that you might see in somebody who does have a tumultuous relationship with food or nutrition and what are some of the signs that it's time to ask for help? Cause I think because diet culture is so normalized, especially mm-hmm. in the United States, we sometimes miss those signals or we miss those red flags. And I would love to hear your input about, you know, hey, this is actually not, a, that's not normal. And it's, it you need to ask for help. Yeah, definitely scarcity. You mentioned it. One of the things, if you find yourself engaging from a perspective of scarcity or uh, feeling like you are trying to hoard food, then that that is a signal that something is wrong. Most times it will sound like Oh, well, girl, let me hurry up and eat this because I know if I can't eat it tomorrow, my diet starts tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, or I can't, I know we can't, we don't have this back home. So I'm going to get this now because I'm not going to be able to, to have it anymore. Those right. things, scarcity triggers you to overeat, overindulge, overcompensate. Also, scarcity can be rooted in the diet programs that we are trying to use to better our bodies and a Mm. lot of people blame themselves for not being able to stick to something when actually they're just triggered by scarcity so it can look like somebody telling you don't eat this don't eat that only have this only have that and in those moments scarcity is turned on and the minute that you feel like something is not going to be available to you you rush in to try to get it all that's a survival Right. I use the example yeah. of a convenience store all the time. If you go in the store and they tell you, you know what, those M&Ms are going to be discontinued. We saw it with the ice cream bar. What did people start doing? They're going to get them. Even though you know you don't want them, you went to the yeah. M&M packet. But because they told you they were not making them anymore, it triggered you to go back and get more. So that yeah. remember that the next time you embark on kind of like a journey where you're like, I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to take this out. See if you can't reframe that to be, to remind yourself that I'm going to have this. And when my body tells me to stop, I'm going to listen to my body to stop. There's more available to me. And if it's not there, then I will find something else to supplement. So it really is in your narrative. If you are finding yourself not able to deal with that and feeling like you have more anxiety, shame, guilt around food, then I would definitely say it's, it's time to talk to somebody. If you're eating something, you're constantly berating yourself talking negatively about yourself, if you're feeling constantly shamed 
for what you're eating. And I mean, this is internal shame, shame that you're imposing on yourself. If you're feeling guilty, saying negative things about yourself. I see people all the time on social media. um, Size six me, please. Take this fat off me, please. All these things that they say about their bodies. If you're finding yourself speaking that way to yourself, then it means that there is some core foundational thoughts that are happening that is continuing to reinforce this guilt, shame, and idea that you're somehow doing something wrong by having the body or size that you have. And that's a sign to talk to somebody. Um, The more serious end of things, if you find yourself severely restricting to the point where it's impacting your health and you're not Mm -hmm. eating or you're um, binging, purging, those kinds of things, then yes, definitely talk to a professional. But most people I work with are not in the disordered eating range of, Mm. um, of things. They're more engaging in patterns that could lead there like weighing yourself every day, weighing yourself 10 times a day, um, cutting out large food groups, eating under the amount of calories needed for your body to function at its optimal level. Um, when you're losing sleep, losing hair, having acne, those kinds of things are signs that you may have a tumultuous relationship with food, but we don't know to pay attention to them because diet culture has made them all normal. Because they'll yeah. tell you when you start to break out, oh, that's your body detoxing. Right. And, or just maybe your body is reacting to something that you're not doing well. Yeah. So those are some things I would say look out for. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think uh, there needs to be some more clarity around that because I mean, I mean, kind of switching gears a little bit. I realize on, especially on TikTok and other so like Instagram, everyone's an expert. Everyone yeah. is a, a guru. Everyone's a dietitian. Everybody, like everybody. And then when a lot of times you actually go to check these credentials and they're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that very interesting because a lot of people are being told to cleanse their bodies. Like um, the other day, I actually just saw a, a TikTok about like parasite cleansing and, you know, eating papaya seeds. And, and someone commented saying, I actually did this and I ended up in the hospital, you know, and it, it just goes to show wow. you how so many people are like so heavily influenced by just words that feed into you know the the tumultuous or the negative relationship they have with their body so sometimes when you find uh somebody that's speaking to that and it sounds it sounds interesting or it sounds like oh that that's exactly what I was looking for someone else to validate let me go and follow this advice even though they're not a doctor or they don't necessarily have the training or the licensing to be giving this advice about this is medical advice that people are just kind of throwing out there. It's really dangerous. And I I really appreciate you, you know, speaking to that because I, so many people are really unaware that it's not normal to weigh yourself multiple times a day. It's not normal to want to do a juice cleanse for three or four days because you want to fit into a dress. Like that's, that's not healthy, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's helpful to have an expert, a licensed expert at that, you know, really speak to that. Um, but getting back to, you know, our relationship with food and, uh, how our mental health ties into our relationship with food, how does our self-worth tie into our relationship with our bodies and how we nourish ourselves um especially i think for our younger audience we have listeners from all different parts of the world and all different age ranges but i think especially for our younger listeners i would love for you to speak to how that self-worth and how we nourish our bodies um how how they connect with each other 
which is such an important topic, you know, diet culture teaches us in the beauty industry, just period, teaches us that our bodies are connected to how we look is determines how valuable we are to society. Right. How we look determines how worthy we are. And unfortunately, it's on a lot of these social media platforms that a lot of younger people are getting that message. And the beauty industry as it sits now and, and the way people are changing their bodies now, we're getting the messages indirectly and both direct, directly that this is how you're going to be validated, thus valued. A lot of people who are growing up with social media, like in it, are learning that likes, shares, engagement, the number of followers validates your relevancy. It, it validates your credibility. And so that then translates into your worth and your value. Mm. If you have a certain body type, influence the culture. If you have a certain body type, if you look a certain way, Instagram model-ish, then that determines your worth and your value because that has been connected to likes, follows, um, verification, all that stuff, right? Jobs, ads, all that stuff. So yeah. it's going to be really hard for folks to tease that apart when that's the world that they're growing up in. But if I could tell them anything, it would be that you are valuable and worthy just because you're not gaining any more value or worth by the shape of your body. You're just not. And it's hard for people to see because they say, well, what if people don't like me? Then that's other internal work that we do. If you're also basing your worth and value based on who you are attracted to or who is attracted to you, none yeah. of it, all of those things are separate, but we've learned to merge them. And that's the trick of diet culture and psychological um, kind of influencing and, and kind of, I guess, conditioning. They would pair a model with whatever the person is it wants. Like a back in the day, it used to be smoking and mm -hmm. the a beautiful model. If you want to be this, then you have to smoke. And so that's the same thing that people are getting now and they're completely separate. They're not, they're not together. So if my body is the thing that determines my worth, then guess what's going to determine my body size, the food mm -hmm. that I put in my mouth. So I have to watch what I put in my mouth that goes into my body because that's going to determine my worth. Yeah. So it all is like an equation. So people start to work backwards. If I want to be valued, I have to have this body. And if I want this body, I have to eat this. Yeah. So all of those things influence and shape your relationship with food because the end result is what people are looking for and they're not looking for or interested or um, kind of invested in the process of just having a healthy relationship with food. We're more interested in what's going to get me the likes, the attraction, the acceptance. And that is the body size. So let me manipulate and work on that. The food is how I'm going to get there. And yeah. that's my worth and value. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for shedding light on that. Um, I think it's obviously we know it's a process and it's, it's a journey when we are trying to heal our relationship with food. But I think looking at it from a point of view of having inherent self-worth, like you said, like you are worthy as is. Mm -hmm. uh, not what it's there's not like a um, a blank after that I'll be worthy when I lose 10 pounds or when I fit into this this dress that is from five years ago and doesn't necessarily need to fit me anyway you know um and I think we put so much pressure on ourselves especially as women uh, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to fit into these molds even if we've outgrown them literally you know I I feel like um, even myself, I, I had a period of time, I think during the pandemic, like really about two years ago when we were quarantined, I think 
that was a time, especially for myself, that I had the most time looking at my body, being at home, not really going out as much. And I really started to evaluate my relationship with my body and, you know, how I was holding on to even like clothes and items of like things that I used to wear five years ago when I was a freshman in college. And I'm like, I'm about to be 30 years old. You know, I, I don't need to hold on to things that are dead weight because I want to fit into a version of myself that doesn't exist anymore. And knowing that you're worthy regardless of where you are in your journey with your yourself and your body. So I really appreciate you speaking to that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of culture and culturally speaking, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you absor- observe or that exist when healing our relationship with food, um, culturally speaking, referring to, you know, obviously black and <laughs> black folks yeah. and, and people of color, because um, we have different challenges when mm-hmm. it comes to our, our relationship with food. Oh my God. One of them being <laughs> the, the mere fact that this isn't a conversation that we have. We don't talk about our relationship with food. Like yeah. very new. So the, fir- the, the thing that I found as a challenge in even working with other black women is that this is new language. We don't, we don't right. know, we know diet language. We know, let me go on a diet. Let me fix this. Let me weigh myself. What is, how many ounces of water should I eat it? We know that stuff backwards and forth. We don't know what it means to have a healthy relationship with food down to the point that even when we hear it, it still sounds like diet culture. People yeah. still, when they hear relationship with food, tell me, oh, you're not going to, you're going to get mad when I eat that right. And I'm like, yeah. No. No more so than I'm going to get mad at who you're dating. That's your business. That's for mm. you. Right? So we have to talk about it in terms of um, how people engage with other people in order for people to understand the relationship aspect of it. So that in and of itself is a cultural hurdle that we don't talk like that about food. The other thing is that it we're either on or off with food. Food is very central to a lot of um, ways that we engage, bond, interact with each other, right? So we're either going to go all in or we're going to go on a diet. And I haven't really yeah. seen a lot of gray area there. When we talk about balance, moderation, all that stuff, I haven't really seen a lot of a lot of us practice being balanced in that because a lot of our uh, kind of engagement around food has been riddled with trauma, poverty, yeah. structural racism, food deserts, lack of resources, So a lot of us don't know how to exist in the gray because when it comes to food, many of us are in survival mode or we're in, we're in bonding mode or, or kind of like, let me gift you, show you love in this way. So I found that that's a lot of the stuff that happens. Also culturally, you know, people, and I would say this just in my own experience in my family, people don't understand when you're saying I'm fine the way with my body, just the way that it is, because Mm. a lot of people are still stuck in diet culture themselves in that they still see uh, a a larger body as unhealthy and a smaller body as healthy. Um, And so it doesn't matter what, what that smaller body is eating, as long as it's small, if that larger body is eating something, then either if I'm either I need to go on a diet or you're doing too much or you know, it's, it's just not the same type of, it's not welcomed in a way that is healthy, it's welcomed in a way that is critiqued and ridiculed, and there's no full understanding. So there's no, yeah. no, I think even in my own experience in my family to just be, unless you're working on something, if you're in a larger body, or, you know, you're going on some diet next time. Also, culturally, I think that as Black women, 
something that I found we do is we 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 bond over negative talk about our bodies. Yes. Which makes it hard to have a healthy relationship with food because the wrongness of our bodies becomes a topic by which we bond through. Yeah. The things that we need to change about our bodies is how we build rapport with each other. It's how yeah. we connect. And so it's hard to change your relationship with food when that's the thing that keeps you connected with folks. Yeah. I think that is such a overlooked part of our healing journey. And you could, I think even food is one aspect of it, but it could be anything in your life that you're really like struggling with. You know, if you have people around you that enable that behavior, it's going to be that much harder to step out of that cycle. And what would you, what what would be your advice or your recommendation towards someone, you know, that maybe grew up with a group of, of girlfriends or, or friends who connected through their uh, negative self-talk around food and their body image and their relationships? Because I do see that as a pattern of, you know, these are my friends. These are the people who know me the most. These are people that, that get me the most, you know, I spent the most time with them, but at the end of the day, these are also people in your life that don't make you love yourself any less. I mean, any more than how healthy are those relationships? You know, like, I, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with in different areas, but specifically when it comes to food and our relationship with food, what would be your advice to someone that it wants to get out of that type of environment, but just doesn't know how to do that? You know, I, one thing that I love about this whole movement around offering ourselves a life of ease, a life of softness, just a mm-hmm. life of, of of just being is that it's not uncommon language anymore. We, we're, we're hearing it. It's something that people are becoming more open to. So I think that if you're in a circle of friends and that's how y'all have bonded, I think you can actually bring up the conversation and say, you know what, y'all, does this, does this feel like ease? Does this mm. feel like softness? You know, I want to encourage us, like maybe if we go out to brunch or we go out to dinner or we meet up, I want to, you you know, the movement that started around when all of us were on our phones, it was like, put your phone in the middle of the table. Mm-hmm. I think you can do that with your friends if the circle is close enough. Hey, we're going to go out and I challenge all of us. Don't say anything about your body. Try, I challenge you and encourage you to have a conversation that is not your body centered or not centered around what you're going to eat or order. Yeah. I encourage all of us and challenge all of us to just try to have a night or a day where our bodies aren't the topic of conversation and see how that feels for us. Also, yeah. let's make a game out of it. If you say something about your body, you buy the next round of drinks. If you say something <laughs> negative about your body, you buy the shots. Like you're going to be the yeah. one. To do that. And then I think it makes people more aware that yeah. of how, how much we're talking about our bodies. Yeah. You know, and so I think if you, you can, you can even make fun, you can make fun out of it. You can use a language that is uh, trending now around ease. Like, does it feel really easy? Is that softness to me? Does that feel yeah. like ease to me to center my body's wrongness or the flaws, perceived flaws that I have in my body? Does that feel easy to me or does that bring me more problems? Yeah. And it's just something to sit with. And folks can journal that too. And if folks yeah. are nights, I think that's a great topic of discussion. That's actually so funny because my, my follow-up question to that was actually how can we invite softness and self-compassion into our relationship with food and you just described perfectly how we can do that with our loved ones and our, our friends but what about with ourselves like what mm-hmm. what are some of the practices of incorporating incorporating ease and softness to have a balanced relationship with mm-hmm. with our bodies and with food because I think a lot of us you know we I think 
I know more women, unfortunately, in my lives and people in my life, not just women, that have a negative relationship with food and their body image than a neutral one or a positive one. So Mm -hmm. how can we start incorporating self-compassion and kindness into our lives so that we can have more of that balance that we're seeking? I think that's a good question. I'm a big language person. I'm a big language and thought person. I think that a lot of how we feel, think, navigate the world is rooted in and starts in how we think and Mm -hmm. our thoughts impact how we feel. So I would encourage people to start at the narrative level. What is your story? What meaning are you making about your body? What meaning are you making about your food? Is it one rooted in scarcity? Mm -hmm. Is it one rooted in kindness? Is it one rooted in compassion? Or is it one rooted in anxiety and fear? If it's fear, anxiety, worry, scarcity, then we need to work on reshaping that narrative to make it one of abundance. How do you create a narrative of abundance? Could simply sound like everything is available to me. I eat what I want. I leave what I don't. Mm. My body will tell me when I need to stop. My body will tell me when I want more. And I'm going to honor my body's voice no matter what that is i trust my body i trust my body to balance itself out because on a scientific level your body is always trying to get to a state of homeostasis which is balance we interrupt the process by not eating or listening to diet rules but honestly your body is always trying to find balance and if we leave it alone the body balances itself out every single time that's its job right? My body does for me what it needs to do when I take care of it. That's compassion. I leave my body to do what it needs to do and it knows best for itself. Yeah. That's compassion. That's kindness. Not a rule by some white man who's never seen you before, who's not taking your lifestyle, your culture into consideration. But my body has also compassion with, my body has gotten me this far. A switch hit for me in 2019 when I had surgery, I had to have some fibroids removed. And mm-hmm. I was so humbled by the way my body took care of me that mm-hmm. I, I had to remind myself, you've spent all these years ridicule, ridiculing your body, critiquing your body, trying to make it lose weight, all these things. Your body recovered. Your body kept you to where you didn't have to stay in the hospital overnight. You didn't have to take meds. Your body bounced back in the time that it was supposed to bounce back. Your body yeah. was able to go to the gym. Your body has been able to lift. No matter if you have back rolls, your body has been able to lift, to run, to endure. And that's how you invite compassion and kindness in by reminding yourself of what your body has done and is able to do. And I do recognize yeah. for some folks that's more on the ableist side of yeah. things. And it doesn't take some, some people's disabilities into consideration. And you can still invite in kindness with disabilities present. What is my body able to do given its limitations? What do I have the capacity to do given my limitations? My body is yeah. able to do this and I honor my body's limits and I honor my body's capacities and, lim- yeah. and abilities as well. I honor what we're able to do given what we have or, or what has happened. So there are, the language is what helps to shift yeah. in that kindness. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that. I know that that's going to resonate with so many people. It resonates with me. I have also been using language um, to kind of reevaluate and 
look into my relationship with my body image and food. And, I, you know, honestly, a lot of people, I would say majority of people don't even know that I even have body image issues. And I, I struggle with my relationship with food and nutrition because I think sometimes people categorize folks and, oh, well, you're a wellness person and mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. a platform. And it's like, no, I have insecurities, child. Mm-hmm. Like I have days where like you you would be surprised like you know and I think just bringing in that that compassion factor is so important I've been doing this practice with myself of anytime I think of a negative thought about myself or my appearance I try to instead of just saying okay let me just push that negative thought away I just try to add a positive thought with it because Mm -hmm. the, the reality is that when we're trying to heal our relationship with ourselves and our bodies, it's going to take time. It's years of conditioning. I mean, you got people that are criticizing how a toddler looks and how much, oh, that baby's chunky. You feed the baby too much. Like it's a baby, you know? So when it's years of conditioning, it's going to take years of unconditioning. And so one, one practice I've been doing is, you know, if I, if I feel insecure about the way I look, I'm like, you know what? I might feel like this, but I know that I did something really, really thoughtful for somebody that I love, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, if it's something physical, like I don't like the way my legs look today or mm-hmm. whatever the case is on my stomach or, you know, I feel I feel like I'm I'm too curvy. And it's like, yeah, but I didn't have these curves five years ago when I wanted them. <laughs> now I finally have them. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's like countering and, and giving yourself that grace to feel your emotions but knowing that that voice in your head a lot of times that's that's been conditioned for you to think for years and it's going to take a long time for you to really start to know what your intuition sounds like and what it feels like once you start to work with a therapist or you start to do that healing work to like get back to the root of who you are and honor your body's limitations like you said as well as what it can do um so I really appreciate everything that you shared around that um and my last question for you is what does softness mean to you as a black woman in any aspect of your life physical mental emotional what does softness mean to you I think if I could use one word it would literally be ease I think that is the part that has resonated with me so much around new kind of movement and thought around softness is is it easy? And, and not not even if it's easy versus hard, but does this feel like ease? Yeah. Does this relationship feel like ease? Does me saying yes to this opportunity feel like ease? Even if I have to do hard work, does it feel like ease and alignment? That is what softness feels, means and feels like to me. Do I feel like I can, I can do, does my nervous system feel settled? Mm. does this make my nervous system activated yeah do I feel do I feel confident do I feel empowered that's what softness means to me Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean to me that I do nothing some days that's what it looks like but also does this feel in alignment does this feel like does this feel empowering does this feel like trust and confidence in myself so that's what softness means to me it's just like um releasing myself to flow into those things, releasing yeah. myself to flow into the confidence and trust that is there. I love that. I love that so much. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ebony. Before before we end this combo, we have a quick rapid fire session yeah. of questions. So it's honestly, it's whatever comes to mind first. Okay. No wrong answers. Okay. okay. So first question, Instagram or TikTok? Instagram. <laughs> hands down. So the hands down. Okay. Journal or venting to a friend? Venting to a friend. Your top favorite three self-help books. Oh, the um shoot, if you wouldn't have asked me, it's um <laughs> the four agreements. Yes, the four agreements. Love it. Love uh, it. The body is not an apology. Mm. And uh, what's the last one that I'm reading now? Oh, Bell Hooks it just came in the mail. The one about love. I haven't read all it yet. about love. And all about love. And I am really, really, really excited to read it. So, and I already, I love Bell Hooks. She was one of the yeah. um, key parts of my dissertation. So I just already know it's going to be be great. It's amazing. It's all great choices. Um, definitely got to read The Body is Not an Apology. I want to check that mm -hmm. one out. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, home cooked meal or takeout? Home cooked. <laughs> uh, and last question: laid back or all glammed up? All glammed up. All glammed up. <laughs> <laughs> I am a girly girl who is from yes. the country, but believes that I I grew up in the city. Yeah. Yes, we love it. We love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ebony. This was an amazing conversation. You really, really touched on so many different aspects of mental health, our relationship with food, our relationship with our bodies. And I already know how valuable this is going to be to everyone listening. So if you could tell us where we can find you and keep in touch. First of all, y'all, Dr. Ebony has content, okay? She has content. <laughs> And I mean, the therapy cards, my therapy cards are an amazing resource. And so I have to really just share that myself because I do have them and it is a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful, you know, discussion tool, but really for someone wanting to do the work and the self-healing and self-discovery, it's an amazing, amazing tool, but would love for you to share where we can find you. Yeah. So I'm like, I like Instagram and that may be just part of my, my age here, but Instagram <laughs> is, is fun for me. Um, it's, I like it there. So you can always find me there. Dr. Ebony online. Um, you can find the therapy cards, my therapy cards.com. I'm also on TikTok as Dr. Ebony, but I, you know, I'm just not there all the time. I'm trying though, <laughs> but I'm not on TikTok. So that's, that's where you can find me. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show we really really appreciate you and sending you ease thank and you. softness to you thank you so much Dr. thank Ebony. you thank you stay connected join sadie baddies on instagram pinterest twitter and more and sign up for our monthly newsletter on sadiebaddies.com to stay in the loop sending you hella love and stay soft baddie